Well, many pastors have a favorite analogy that they like to turn to over and over again. I've even heard of some Christians who have gotten upset with their pastors because their pastor turns to an analogy they don't understand, uh, maybe like football or something for a non-football fan. My pastor keeps talking about this game that I don't understand. He keeps using it as an analogy. I don't get it. Well, Paul the Apostle had an analogy that he used time and time again in his epistles, and it was the analogy or the illustration of the foot race. Now, he used the foot race in various ways throughout his letters, including right here in Galatians chapter 5. Notice what he said to them in verse 7. He said, you were running well. When he had left the Galatians, they had been on the path of grace. Uh, They were doing so good. Uh, He had not taught them law. He had not told them that there were things they needed to do to add to the gospel of Christ in order to be approved by God. But after he left, even though they had been running well, there were those who came in and added to the gospel message and caused them to be hindered in the race of grace that they had been running. And so Paul unleashed this paragraph that we read this morning onto the Galatian church. Now, you might not have picked up on this as we read through it, but it's a paragraph that is not as tightly or as neatly organized as so much of Paul's writing and especially the rest of Galatians. With Paul, it is so often a logical statement then explained and built upon leading to a new logical statement which is explained and built upon. This passage is not logical. This passage is more emotional. It's like a machine gun fire of exhortations. It's like a parent pleading with their wayward child. And anything that he can say that might turn them back to the course of grace, Paul is willing to say it. And in fact, some of you might have been a little put off by the tone that Paul even uses in this passage. Uh, Notice how he said in verse 12, he said, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. That's severe language from the apostle. In verse 10, he speaks about these false teachers and says, they will bear their penalty. It was his way of saying they are going to pay for the crime they have committed in adding to the gospel there in Galatia. And those of you who know Paul know that Paul did not go around talking like that all the time over and for every minor disagreement. To him, there was a big deal at stake, the gospel itself. And because the stakes were so high, Paul spoke with vehemence. He spoke with passion. He wished that the legalists would completely cut off their ability to reproduce their doctrines in the lives of others. And it might sound to us on the surface like Paul is being harsh or intemperate, but his ferocity came from a bedrock of love for the people of this earth. If the legalists had their way, the gospel would be buried, and the gospel is the message that saves humanity. And so for him, he knows the stakes are high, and he's pleading with the Galatians, do not yield for even a moment and get back on the track or the course of grace. Now for us, I think that we can use this passage 
Of course, in the same way that Paul intended it for the original hearers. There are times for us where we drift from the path of grace. We know the gospel of grace, we believe the gospel of grace, but we begin to add certain perspectives or views or habits or uh, belief systems to the gospel itself. And once that occurs, we need to get back onto the track of grace. And there were two things that Paul encouraged the Galatians to do to get back on this course of grace. And that's what we're going to think about this morning, these two things. All right, so the first thing that I want you to note is that if we're going to get back and be steady in the track or the race of grace, we have to, number one, identify hindering voices that keep us from running in grace. Notice the question that Paul asked them in verse seven. He asked, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He wanted them to take a look at what they were thinking, what they were believing, what was informing the way that they looked at the world or the way that they felt their emotional state. He wanted them to take a look at that and ask, who put the ideas in your head that would make you think or feel the way that you do? Who hindered you from running on this path of grace? Now, I talked about football analogies a moment ago, and I have one this morning for you. Way back on Thanksgiving Day 2013, the Pittsburgh Steelers were playing their rivals, the Baltimore Ravens. And some of you football fans might remember this moment, but there was a Ravens player at one part of the game who was running down the sideline on their way to a very long touchdown when the Steelers coach uh, found himself a little bit onto the playing surface, which altered the course of the player, which led to him being tackled, which saved a touchdown. Now, the coach was Mike Tomlin, and he still denies that he did it on purpose to this day. And when you watch it in real speed, it doesn't really seem like all that much is happening. But then they started showing the replays, and the replays looked terrible. They looked like junior high bad, like the coach kind of leaning out and putting his foot out onto the field. I mean, it just looked like there is no way that that was not on purpose. What Paul the Apostle is doing to the Galatians is he's saying, I want you to run your own replay review. Who tripped you up? When I left, you were on the right track. When I left, you were steeped in the gospel of grace. When I left, you were passionate about Jesus alone. But now you're passionate about something in addition to him. Who tripped you up to get you so vehement about something other than the Lord? Paul is saying this because he knew that it was not God who put this passion in them. They might have said that. They might have said, well, we looked into the word and we thought that God would want us to be passionate about these things. But Paul said, no, him who called you did not do this. He said, verse nine, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. God hadn't authored this passion. He hadn't authored this addition to the gospel. And anytime that we are impassioned, persuaded, or moved, or influenced by a message that God did not create, we should be concerned. Why should we be concerned? Well, Paul said in verse 9, he said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, that was a proverb that they had in their time from the biblical era, 
which basically meant that even a small amount of evil teaching could spread throughout their entire belief system and the entire congregation, just like a small amount of leaven impacts the whole loaf of bread. Like yeast, these anti-gospels that were being preached in the Galatian church would spread and permeate everything there. And that's why Paul wanted them to take seriously the task of asking the question, who hindered us from obeying the truth? What about you? What about us? What voices have most shaped you? What voices have helped you process the world? Are they pushing you more to the gospel, or do they cause you to dilute or even devalue the importance of the gospel? Do they hold the gospel up as the highest message, the answer to all that ills humanity, or do they rarely mention it? Do they champion it as the hope for mankind, or is it relegated to the corner of the room like a disobedient child in the old days? I think questions like these can help us discover and identify the voices from outside us and inside us that hinder us from running in grace. And one day, one way to ask this question and to remain alert to voices that hinder us from grace is to embrace the offense of the cross. That's what this passage shows us. Look at what Paul said in verse 11. He said, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Why, why did Paul ask that question? Why did he say, if I, am, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Paul was very clear throughout the whole letter that he did not preach that one must be circumcised in order to be saved, that a man needed to adopt Jewish customs and practices in order to be a true believer and beloved in God's sight. So why did he say, if I still preach it? Well, apparently the false teachers in Galatia had made an accusation about Paul that he did preach circumcision whenever it was convenient to him. In other words, he added to the gospel Judaism when he was in front of Jews, but when he was in front of Gentiles and a non-Jewish crowd, he never mentioned it. That was the accusation. Now, they might have thought of this accusation because of some of the things that Paul did from time to time that they misunderstood. Like, for instance... If you look at the life of Timothy, the man whose uh, the, the letters 1st and 2nd Timothy are addressed to, he got his start on Paul's ministry team when he was just a young man. And Timothy was, uh, had Jewish blood in his veins, but he was not uh, obedient to the laws of the Old Testament. Paul knew that they were going to be going to Gentile populations and Jewish populations, and that when they were with the Jews, they might struggle to know that Timothy had not been obedient to the Old Testament commandments and laws. So Paul asked Timothy to be circumcised, not as a way to earn his salvation, but as a way to be culturally sensitive to the people that they were going to speak to. It wasn't about salvation, it was about an open door to reach into that part of humanity. And Timothy was willing to do anything in order to reach people, including uh, being willing to obey some of the Old Testament commandments. But the interesting thing is that Paul knew that if he still preached that message, if he told people 
that works-based righteousness was actually a thing, that being a good person who kept God's law would prove them before God. Then he said in verse 11, if that's what I've been doing, then I know that the offense of the cross has ceased. Well, Paul knew that the offense of the cross hadn't ceased because everywhere he went, he was still persecuted. So when he talked about the cross, he was persecuted. He knew that the message he preached was still an offensive message. Now, the cross of Christ is offensive because it tells us that we are sinners who can't do anything to save ourselves. Now, some people say that all religions are the same, that they've just been created by humans uh, in order to uh, help us to be good people, that they all kind of communicate the same thing, but just in different packaging. But that is not at all what Christianity communicates. Christianity claims that we are so far gone that it took a rescue mission to save us. Christianity communicates that sin has sunk itself so deeply into the human species that even though we're made in God's image and we reflect God often, our brokenness and our sin is too big an obstacle to be overcome by human effort. Instead, God himself, Christianity says, had to become one of us, live perfectly for us, and die in our place to take the judgment that we deserved. And all of that is the offense of the cross. The Greek word for offense that Paul used here is the word scandalon. It sounds like our English word scandalous for a reason. Uh, in another place, Paul called the gospel a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. It's scandalous. It tripped them up. Thomas Schreiner said it this way about the gospel. He said, human beings take umbrage in being told that even their best works are stained with evil, that everything they do is insufficient to be right with God, and that the only basis for right standing with God is the cross of Jesus Christ. But when we embrace the scandal of the gospel, when we embrace this stumbling block of the gospel, when we agree with the offense of the cross, and when it remains sharp to us, we are, listen to me now, more prone to remain in grace. The second that you think that God views some as better than others, you will begin to slip from relating to God or relating to others by grace or with grace. But as long as we see how the cross has leveled all of humanity, has declared that all of humanity is in need of salvation from their sin, that helps you to be a person who continually runs in grace. And I don't want you to lose the scandalon of the cross. In other words, I don't want the gospel to become domesticated to us. Domesticated, what do I mean by that? Well, you know that a wolf and a chihuahua are related. That's what I mean by domesticated. I don't want the gospel to become this message that's like a little chihuahua that can sit on our lap as we drive around town going to Whole Foods in our SUV. I want the gospel to be ferocious to us, to be this predatorial message that is hunting down every person that has fallen short of the glory of God. And if we can remain there in our hearts, we are preserved and stay more faithfully in the path of grace. 
Okay, the second thing, though, that I want you to see is that not only must we constantly identify hindering voices to stay strong in grace, but we have to adopt a new slavery. We have to adopt a new slavery. Uh, Let me show you what I mean by that, starting in verse 13. Uh, Paul changed his tone a little bit when he said in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, this is a new tone from Paul. Up to this point, he's been really focused on making sure that we don't lose our gospel freedom. Now he changes his tone and he begins to exhort us not to abuse our gospel freedom. Uh, He tells us, don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And he's gonna tell us how to use it in a moment But first, let's think about that first exhortation. Like I said last week, I think we often define freedom as doing whatever we please. And many of us believe that denying our rights or denying our impulses is sacrilegious, that it's unacceptable behavior. But the truth is that that type of freedom, it leads to slavery. I think we can see this in our recent societal history in lots of different ways. You know, in the 60s and 70s, the West went through a sexual revolution. And uh, one of the things that resulted during that time that modern medicine created was birth control, which combined with the sexual revolution offered women the right to commitment-free sexual experiences. It's a practice that in most cultures throughout history, men have engaged in for centuries. But this was celebrated in the West as a freedom by our society, freeing all of us, men and women, from the shackles of marital exclusivity. Uh, In her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, she says this. She said, a growing body of evidence, though, has shown that for women especially, Having multiple sexual partners is correlated with lower levels of mental health and happiness. Conversely, far from being locked into misery, the happiest wives in America are highly religious women married to highly religious men. Couples who pray together, read scripture at home, attend church, and so on, are twice as likely as their secular peers to say they are satisfied with their sexual relationship. We might think that Christian marriage is robbing women of sexual freedom, but the data suggests, and if you read this in its original quote from her book, it's heavily footnoted because she's referencing all of these uh, studies that have been conducted. The data suggests that it's pulling women and men away from the train wreck of commitment-free sex. Look, you're never going to get that from the movies. When you watch the movies, you're going to think that a Christian couple has the most boring, the most dull sexual life ever. But what the data is showing is that that's not the reality. It's actually the converse that is leading to a dryness in the human condition. The early church, when we first got our launch, we had our own little sexual revolution in the other direction. When men began committing to Christianity in the first century, They began giving up the normal and expected Greco-Roman sexual freedom from their time and culture. And they began committing to faithfulness in marriage. They were free from the law, 
but they could not imagine using their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. They could not imagine practicing unholiness in the presence of a holy and righteous God. So they restrained themselves, they would not use their freedom on the flesh, and neither should we, because the flesh enslaves. To deny the self in a culture like ours, a culture of self, it's like I said, seen as sacrilegious. It's one of the most countercultural things that we can do. Self-disobedience in our modern time is seen as taboo, but what you need to know is it's intensely Christian, and it leads to a better life. I'll illustrate this in one more way with a software or app that I use called Freedom. It's, a, it's a, an app or a piece of software that sits on your computer or sits on your phone or your tablet, any device that you have that can access the internet. And you can tell it when to allow the internet, and you can even tell it what internet to allow. So for instance, I use it during my study times where I'm preparing sermons so that instead of getting distracted, looking up Dodgers scores or something like that, I have to stay focused because I can't get online to check email and things like that. So for instance, you could tell it that, hey, in the morning, I want to make sure that my phones and my computers cannot get online so that I can protect some time to seek the Lord. It's a restriction, it's a lack of freedom that does what? It sets you free to be and do what you've intended to do. That's what Paul is telling us. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh because it leads to slavery. But then he says there's a new version of slavery that we should adopt. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, through love, serve one another. That's the slavery that I'm talking about today. Through love, serve one another. Now, Jesus, of course, nudged his disciples towards this life of service all the time, including in a famous passage right before he was betrayed, right before he was arrested, the night before he went to the cross. There with his disciples, alone with them, Jesus took the form of the household servant and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. It was a shocking moment for the disciples. But Jesus told them that what he'd done was meant to serve as an illustration for the way that they were to serve each other in the age and in the years to come. Now to many of us, serving others sounds like a terrible kind of life but Jesus, in that passage, said to his disciples, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do these things. And anyone, I think, who has given themselves to the service of others, motivated by love, has discovered the truth of the blessing that Jesus promised if we embrace that brand of life. When we use our freedom for the flesh, we become miserable. But when we use our freedom to serve other people, burdens lift, problems are put in perspective, and life becomes what it was meant to be as God's image bearers. Uh, I began walking with the Lord in the summer of 1996, but I will tell you it wasn't a clean experience. 
It wasn't like I was rebelling against the Lord one day and then just had a moment and then all of a sudden everything was all good. It was the ugliest summer of my life. I was up and down. There were days of devotion, days of conviction, days of trying to walk with him, followed by days of failure, days of giving into the flesh. And I was, as a result, miserable until I came to a place of full surrender to the Lord, at least as full as an 18-year-old kid could muster. Now, I contrast that with the summer of 1997, the very next summer. That summer was one of the best in my entire life because that was the summer that I was introduced to ministering to other people. I got to spend a whole summer taking care of people younger than me, serving them in the body of Christ. And I began to realize that this is what life is about. And as I poured into others and served others, I realized this is the life that is so, so good. And this new slavery loving one another, serving one another through love. It leads to life and health, not just for you as the individual, but for the communities that your life touches. And when a man denies his impulses and works hard to serve the people in his sphere of influence, he creates a place of safety and love. When a woman lays down her life to serve and love her local congregation, she becomes a beacon in that church and a place of respite and nurture in a brutal world. And when pastors deny their baser instincts and instead sacrifice themselves to be men of the word and prayer, the churches they serve are blessed. And Paul used the word for serve, the word that he used is the same word that he used to describe our slavery to the elementary principles of the world before we knew Jesus. In other words, it's a word that means I can't do anything else. And what Paul is rooting for is for us to become addicted to serving one another through love. He's looking for that to become so part of who we are that it's like we can't imagine doing anything else. Now, when you love in that way, it serves as the launching pad from which all good ministry or help of others or service of others occurs. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, they were intensely gifted. They had some very spiritually dynamic people in their church. And so Paul had to talk to them about the work of the Spirit in their church and give them some parameters and guidelines and explanations and teachings. But in the middle of his section where he talks to them about their extreme giftedness, he gives this beautiful chapter. It's often read at weddings. It's the 1 Corinthians 13 love chapter. This doesn't have anything to do with marital love or romantic love, though. It has to do with the way that we treat other people. And in that passage, before Paul talked about what love does or what, what, what love looks like, what he tells us is that when we see a problem in other people and are motivated to serve them because we want to fix the problem, or we are bothered by who they are, so we want to address who they are, he says that in moments like that, we are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, when you try to help someone without love, you are, he said, annoying. He said, you can have all faith, you can have all power, you can have all sacrifice, but if love is not present, he said, you are nothing and you gain nothing. It's important for us to love. 
But Paul told us how this new slavery, he said it fulfills the very law that the Galatians were tempted to obey. Remember, the Galatians had heard these false teachers say, oh, you need to add the law to Jesus. Well, look at what Paul said in verse 14. He said, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall, here's the one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this might shock some of you a little bit who have been here since the very beginning of the book of Galatians. Up to this point, Paul's big thing about the law has been, because of Jesus, we're not under it. Because of Jesus, we don't have to obey it. Because of Jesus, we've been set free. Because of Jesus, the law has been fulfilled by Jesus, and so we don't need to add the law. Now Paul comes along and he says, but when you love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the whole law. And he's saying, that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing, a positive thing. Now when he says that, when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, some of you might be thinking of the time that Jesus said this. Religious leaders came to him and challenged him, put him on the spot. What's the greatest commandment? Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what you might forget is that when Jesus said that, he was actually quoting from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm not going to take a show of hands on how many of you guys have read through the whole book of Leviticus before, but I guarantee you it's probably less of you than have started the book of Leviticus before. I mean, it's like the law of the law. It's the pinnacle of the rules and regulations, the tedium of Judaism. But right there in the midst of it, Leviticus says, no, fulfilling the law, it happens when you love, when you love your neighbor as yourself. I think we can illustrate this by thinking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments came on two tablets. The first four related to our relationship with God, and we're likely on the first tablet. And the last six commandments relates, relate to our relationship with other people, and we're likely on the second tablet. Think about those second tablet commandments. The first one tells us that we are to honor our parents. We are to honor and respect our parents. Now, when that happens, when we honor our parents, what are we doing? Well, in one sense, we're respecting the family structure. We're saying families are good, families are important. It's important for us to be thinking about the, next, the, uh, the, the older generations, to be hearing their wisdom and their guidance. It's important for us to honor them and respect them as they move on into their older age. And what Paul is saying is, when you say, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to serve through love, you will just do that thing. And all the other horizontal commandments are also fulfilled through love. To refrain from murder, commandment number five or six, to refrain from theft, commandment number seven, to refuse to lie, commandment number eight, to resist covetousness, commandment number nine, and to keep your marriage vows, commandment 10, are all other ways to love your neighbor as yourself. Think of it, how can I love you and at the same time hurt you? How can I expect you to pick up the relational, psychological, and societal damage that my murderous heart 
or my hating heart or my angry heart creates. That's not love. Love would say, I gotta deal with this so that you don't have to deal with that. How can I love you and steal your money or steal your time or steal your attention for my own selfish gain? How could I love you and lie to you? How can I love you and promote fornication or adultery that not only hurts you, but a cascading network of other relationships both now and in the future? No, to love is to keep the law. And Christ has set us free so that we can love. The Old Testament anticipated this message. People in the Old Testament era could not be obedient to the law, but the prophets began declaring that one day a moment would come where the Spirit of God would live inside of God's people, that a new covenant would occur. And Jesus brought with him that new covenant where he begins to write the law onto our very hearts. We're transformed from the inside out. This is true freedom. Freedom not to do whatever we want, but freedom to follow God free to fulfill the law through love. So at this point, some of you guys might be asking the questions, well, what is Galatians saying? Is Galatians saying that we're, we're, we're not obligated to keep the law? Or is Galatians saying that we are obligated to keep the law? And here's my answer. I would say the answer is yes. I'll let that sink in for a moment. In one sense, getting our acceptance from law-keeping, uh, we're, we're not obligated to keep the law in that sense. It's been fulfilled for us by Jesus, and we're set free from relating to it in that way. But in another sense, since we are, if we're believers in Christ Jesus, regenerate people with new natures who are free to not sin, we are obligated to keep the law. We are free from the law as a way to earn a position before God, but the law-keeping by neighbor-loving method is still a way to please God. And if we know God through the gospel, we want desperately to please him. Now, Paul was confident that the Galatian church would get the message that he was preaching to them. Notice what he said back, if we rewind a little bit, in verse 10. He said, I have confidence in the Lord, that you will take no other view. His confidence wasn't because of the Galatians, it was because of the Lord. I have confidence, he said, in the Lord. I think God's gonna do this in your lives, he's saying. I think he's gonna convince you, I think he's gonna persuade you. I think the very presence of this letter is evidence that God is working to persuade you of this conviction. Kind of reminds me of the attitude that Paul had about the Philippian church when he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I think that it's good for us to have that same attitude about ourselves and about others that Paul had for the Galatian church. Let's have the same confidence about one another. Let's pray that God would form in us a community that helps one another identify hindering voices and adopt the new slavery of love. And when we don't see it happening in the lives of other people, let's not get all judgmental and critical, but let's have the attitude like Paul where we say, you know, I believe that God is gonna wake that up in them at some point in time. Let's not be a people who use freedom as a mask for fleshly sin, 
but let's abandon our freedoms for the sake of love. Let's be a people who are more and more like Jesus, who laid down the freedom of eternal privilege to obey the impulse of love. Let's fulfill the law by going past mere requirement and into sacrifice. Let's be a people who are running in the grace of God, amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today, and we want to be this, we want to have this, we want to experience this, Lord. Not a trying to condense a walk with you down to a list of rules and regulations, but to be able to say, there is a God who has so won my heart, who loved me so wonderfully, so excessively, that I want to respond to that grace by loving those who he has put in my life. So Lord, we pray that you would grow us in this way. Lord, if there are hindering voices in our lives or when they come, those voices that get us off track from grace, voices inside us and voices from the outside of us, help us, Lord, to see them and then after identifying them, to cut them out from our information stream. That we might be a people who are fixated on the glorious, tenacious, and good gospel of grace. Thank you, Lord. Father, for those of us for whom the gospel is nice but has perhaps lost its teeth, Lord, we know that's not your doing, but something has happened within us. So we pray, Lord, that you'd get us back to the scandalon of the cross. Thank you, Lord. And as I'm praying, perhaps you're here today, this morning, and you don't know Jesus yet. The Bible says that every single one of us fell short of God's glory. So Jesus came to live the perfect life that none of us here in this room could ever live. And then he died on the cross in the place of all of us in this room, taking all of the punishment into his body on that cross. And then he rose from the grave so that if you believe in Jesus, you could have new life just as he received in his resurrection. And today, if you're recognizing that you are in need of that forgiveness, you are in need of that grace and mercy. You are in need of him to make you whole. The Bible tells you that you need to believe in Jesus. It's an action. It's a decision. It's a conscious throwing, not just of your intellect and mind, but your whole self upon him. And if that describes you today, if you're ready to receive him, you need to pray right now to him. If that's you, I'd invite you to pray something like this. I'll lead you. Say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Come into my life and make me new. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the life I could never live. Thank you for sending him to the cross to die in my place. And thank you for raising him back to life. And I pray that you would forgive me of all I've ever done and will ever do and help me to turn now and live my life for you. 
Lord, we thank you this morning and rejoice in your marvelous goodness and grace. You're so good to us, Lord. We rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen.